Hey, what's up? This is Manik and welcome to the first episode of the Manik Experiment. Today, we have with us an urban water doctor, Dr. Bhakti Devi. Dr. Devi has moved back to India recently from Australia after spending 25 years helping with Australia, which is one of the driest countries in the world, resolve its water issues. Dr. Bhakti Devi has got a PhD in urban water and now resides in the city of Bangalore, helping that city and individuals in that city reduce their water footprint. We're going to sit down with Dr. Bhakti today and understand what it is that she exactly does, how she helps residential establishments and individuals reduce their water footprint through her innovative water consultancy solutions and water audits. Also, we're going to try and understand from her why this problem of water is happening across India. We all know that this challenge is all the way from Chennai to Delhi. Taps are going to start running dry very, very soon. So she explains why this is happening and what we need to do as individuals to ensure that we reduce our water footprint. So I hope you get something out of this. Without further ado, let's get into the interview. There's about 30 seconds before this interview starts because this is my first podcast. Uh, there was a little bit of a glitch from my end. So I will take this time quickly to introduce myself. My name is Manik Thapar and I am the founder and CEO of an organization by the name of EcoWise Waste Management that is in the business of garbage collection, segregation, transportation, aggregation um, and if you want to know more about us, you can check us out at www.ecowise.net.in. Thank you. Yeah. Yeah. So should I start? Yeah. So, yeah. So you wanted to know uh, what I did in Australia and then why have I moved back to India. That's so I moved there. I initially worked there as an environmental engineer, uh, designing, treating, I mean, designing for wastewater treatment plants water treatment, rainwater harvesting, uh, operating commissioning, those things. And then um, I, then they moved to this uh, very interest and also had an opportunity to work on one of the largest water reclamation plants that was built just before, uh, for the Olympics around 98-99 because 2000 Sydney was hosting the Olympic Games. The Olympic Games and they was a big, uh, that provided a big impetus for the Australian government to promote sustainability uh, in everything they were doing uh, for that. And that actually uh, gave birth to a lot of uh, organizations and think tank groups. So after I finished the Olympics project, uh, I got a, uh, there was a job that came up with a kind of a think tank group. I, I should say it, it was a think tank group on sustainability uh, within, a, within a university. Okay. And they were, what they were doing is to help everyone, all organizations like municipalities, and water utilities, energy utilities, to really understand what does sustainability mean for their business. Right. And uh, when they advertised for the job, I was just an engineer, and they wanted an engineer to join the team. Okay. I had no idea what the what they were doing, really. Okay. Uh, I just thought it was an interesting, sounded interesting. It was called the Institute for Sustainable Futures. Uh, and I, I went for the interview because I got selected for the interview. And after I joined and I got the job, uh, because what I, after I joined, I learned is it's a multidisciplinary group of people coming from very different, uh, backgrounds and disciplines like 
law, science, sociology, psychology, engineering, uh, so that they didn't have an engineer in the team. And uh, that's why they hired me. And when I started working on one of their first projects, it was my first introduction to how actually change happens, how to effect a change. Because I, as a first design engineer, was, uh, you know, quite uh, happy designing these wastewater treatment thinking, I mean, which was solving the pollution problem of water pollution. Uh, but this was more interesting, I thought, because what I was doing is, the project, one of the first projects I worked on was, uh, was very interesting. It was for Sydney Water. Okay. And what the, the think tank group was doing for Sydney Water is to tell them that if you invested money in the customers to change, to go and change their shower heads and toilets and uh, make them all efficient with your money, uh, then you actually uh, are doing good business uh, in, in real time. Like it, it makes business sense. Okay. And this was very, very interesting because imagine uh, telling a, a company that sells water to say that you should go and pay money to help your customers to reduce water consumption. Mm -hmm. uh, so, but then I was the analyst on the job. My job was to crunch all the numbers okay. uh, to show, you know, how many, how much it makes a difference, uh, how much volume gets reduced when everyone does this water efficiency uh -huh. and, and how it actually, uh, you know, reduces the flow to the sewage plant, how much of the pumping cost reduces. And, and my job was to pull out all those numbers and crunch the numbers. And then, uh, so basically I was getting introduced to this world of evidence-based uh, plans and evidence-based policies. So you, you show by data to the utilities that how much of a difference it makes. And that was very fascinating for me. And I also was discovering over there that I'm actually a big picture person. I enjoyed that job very much. Okay. And uh, so, okay. that, so that was my, basically my training ground in how to effect change at, at that very, very important level of policy making, planning, so that it actually gets, uh, you know, scaled at a very good uh, level. And uh, so, yeah, so that was uh, also required me to be uh, having a micro view as well as a macro view. So I did that job for a while and then I steered into, uh, and I also along the way, because I was part of the university, uh, did a PhD in uh, urban water uh, on a policy uh, thing. And uh, after that, I was uh, actually, I was very fortunate to uh, get uh, hired by City of Sydney a municipality. Uh, and the job was to, you know, give them a water strategy. Now, very similar, Australia and India are very similar in two respects. Hmm. One is both are water stressed. Mm -hmm. uh, Australia is one of the driest continents on earth. Uh, and they have been very, very proactive because of that. Uh, you know, many parts of them are much more proactive. Uh, the other common, uh, the thing I find between India and Australia is that both of them are commonwealth countries. Both of them have the same bureaucracy, same huh. governance structure. Okay. Right? So, uh, so basically, uh, you know, they, uh, the, the governance structure over there for water is such that municipalities only manage storm water. Okay. They do not uh, look after the water supply or the sewage, uh, you know, managing the sewage part. That, for that, they set up a water utility or a water company. Okay. So very similar to, for example, in Bangalore, we have uh, the Bangalore municipality BGMP and the Bangalore water sewage board. Are these water utility companies in Australia private or government owned? 
Okay, in this case, most of them are not yet very private like the UK. They are uh, owned by the state government, but they have been given a very corporate structure. So that uh, the mandate that they must make themselves uh, profitable or, or run efficiently, so run uh, financially efficiently. For that reason, they have been incorporated, uh, and therefore they will look like a they will act like a company, but all the revenue goes to the uh, state government. Uh, in case of this, they are owned by the state government. Doctor, I just, want, yeah. just wanted to rip, uh, yes. go back to a point that you had made initially, where you were yes. saying that these a lot of these water companies or, or companies that were selling um, um, or delivering water to um, clients there in Australia, they were required, yes. you were required to change the taps and, and you know, the shutters mm -hmm. and this and that. What, Correct. And, and that was supposed to be funded by these companies, am I right? Yes, I mean, the Sydney Water themselves, uh, we were asking, hmm. uh, we were proving to Sydney Water and we, they did it. Once we gave them the whole analysis, they actually invested for 10 years continuously on uh, putting their money into going and changing people's shower heads, toilets, at creating a lot of visit programs. At their own cost or at the ta at basically at the taxpayer's cost, right? Uh, it is, but at the same time, uh, they can't be, uh, you know, like subsidizing things okay. because they still have to make profit. That's their mandate. The mandate is a life. So what happens is they create a company mm. uh, which is mm. very regular, very heavily regulated to say that you must, uh, you know, make your use of the budget efficiently, which means you must return profit uh, or, or make sure that you're not going doing a loss. Okay. Secondly, you have, they were given uh, mandates on uh, regulatory, uh, what they call it, license conditions mm. on they must reduce the demand uh, of water uh, as they're selling water because some of the when it was uh, when 1998, around that time, they were made a company. Earlier than that, they were just like any other government department. Okay. So when they made a company, at that time, the local environmental groups, uh, they made a, uh, you know, they made a request and they made a put pressure on the government to say, if you're creating a company, you must give them a mandate to reduce demand. Otherwise, they'll be simply only making money out of selling water and not doing the right thing. So, do you so it was. Uh, these, yes. these, these companies then were going around, going and changing shower heads and, and various other things at their own cost. Was there a was there a pushback yes. from them initially? Uh, pushback only, uh, not no no pushback because of the fact, as I said, it was it was making a business case and what way to them because what it allowed that when they invested money into this, hmm. they were getting very significant money saving, financial savings from postponing their upgrade. Okay. Because what happens, Malik, is that when a city is serviced by a water utility, mm. uh, it's not a fixed thing mm. because city is continuously growing. So they don't have to only sell water for the current population, mm. but have to constantly work on how they're going to provide for the future and how are they going to build infrastructure for the future population. And that's a lot of capital investment. So the, so what the, the infrastructure side. Uh, sorry, tell again. The cost savings for them. I mean, they they saw the the Correct. was on the infrastructure side. They saw value on the on saving money on the infrastructure yes. by doing this. Yeah, that's right. And we showed them because it's not obvious unless you actually crunch the numbers in a very detailed way and show how much difference it makes in a whole lot of uh, no, and also operating costs because a lot of water gets pumped to supply. 
in these large systems that all cities around the world are run by, there's a large cost to pumping water from the original source to the city. And that cost also reduces when you have less volume to pump to service the city. So it's, it's not just capital cost, it's also operational and maintenance cost. Okay. Uh, there's a saving on that. So, so yeah, so that's, so to cut, uh, come back to, you know, then, so having done that, I did that, uh, uh, you know, I was hired by City of Sydney to build a water strategy for them, which is a very rare thing for a municipality to say, we would like to, you know, uh, you know, create these water supply systems that are small and decentralized and, uh, you know, not dependent on this large uh, centralized systems, but it actually works complementary on a hybrid way. And uh, because what, we managed... What was yes? the thought process behind them wanting to do something like this, behind the city of Sydney yes. to do something like this? Yes. So what happened is city of Sydney had a very green and ambitious mayor appointed. I mean, she got elected. And uh, she had conducted this community-wide uh, consultation and uh, where community said to the, uh, the, you know, the mayor that look, and they had just come out of a very long drought, 10 year drought. So they said that, you know, we keep getting these droughts. Uh, why aren't we capturing this local water and, you know, creating some uh, supplies for our, because what used to happen is every time the drought comes, they would be restricted to uh, water the gardens, water the parks. And they are very sports culture in Australia. Mm -hmm. So, uh, you know, it, it would impact on what they can, how much they can play on the sports ground. There is a lot of injuries that happen when the, you know, the, is the turf is not maintained very well. Sure. So they used to get very annoyed that, you know, we can't water and of course because of the drought. So they said, that, you know, why aren't we doing some, uh, you know, locally created water systems that we can maintain our parks and sports overs, etc. Uh -huh. So that became one of the mandates that, uh, you know, the mayor uh, kind of uh, got elected on is that we will create a local water, energy and waste system, small scale, decentralized. Okay. And uh, so once they announced that, uh, they had to hire a person to guide how do you do it? Because no city has ever done that type of thing in Australia before. Yeah. So uh, and I became the lucky person to win the job of guiding them into creating how do you create, how does city uh, plan and plan way. How can you identify those opportunities to create these small systems? Okay. And how do you do them? How do you execute them? Okay. And so that uh, was a very challenging and very interesting uh, job that I had. And I got a first-hand taste because earlier when I worked with the think tank group, we didn't work with municipalities. Okay. We were working from outside, building their capacity and doing small projects uh, for them so that they understand. But here now, for the first time. One city had a big, uh, you know, announced that they will do that as a main thing. And also I got the job to do it from the inside, not as a consultant, but as one of the, uh, you know, employees within the city, which was a very new experience for me. But it gave me a first-hand taste of what is possible at a local level. It was making me, uh, you know, putting me in touch with the community. And, you know, whatever we do, I, I was able to get immediate response uh, from the community, and it was very, very interesting and very satisfying. And it just also made me aware of the power that local municipality, local people uh, have when they put their mind to, uh, you know, uh, you know, look at how do we manage the resource that we control, that we have within our control. Because there's always, as I said, very similar to India, they have a federal level, no, they call the federal or the central government, 
there are state governments, there are local governments. Okay. Right? There's always these levels of government. But then, uh, you, there are certain things you can do as a local. Yeah, you don't have to be encumbered by, you know, the state government, what are they providing you, what is the central government providing you. There's so many more possibilities. And basically that water uh, strategy development, which I did for the city of Sydney, mm-hmm. it gave me, it was basically a blank sheet I was given to say, how do we do this, right? And uh, I was uh, basically in the, in the journey of making the strategy for them, I discovered that, you know, how powerful, but it's just that you need to be made aware of that power, that you have a lot of power in, in making the most of your local resources, and uh, therefore, you know, how much more you can do. So basically, that decentralized water master plan that I developed became uh, like a visionary document okay. for the city telling its stakeholders to say, look, here are the possibilities that we have to create a water abundant city, uh, even in the drought conditions, mm-hmm. and uh, and we laid out those uh, those uh, opportunities very detailed, uh, done a detailed technical feasibility on them, and invited them to say, look, where would you like to partner? So it is not to say the city has to do everything. City can partner with the local community, the local, because there's always uh, you know benefits are shared. There are shared benefits. So city became like the enabler or the facilitator of a very um, uh, visionary and a very sustainable water strategy, basically. Even though it has no mandate to uh, do anything on water except to manage floods uh, on the streets uh, with the storm water. But uh, here it was, city of Sydney was, you know, saying that we can do so much more than just uh, manage floods. Uh, so yeah, so that uh, once I got the taste of that, and of course Sydney Water also later hired me to help them with their uh, you know new strategy of doing these small systems. Uh, so I was working for Sydney Water, and uh, but I just had got so much of that local water taste from uh, City of Sydney uh, uh, that that bug has got me, and I just kept thinking of India because every time I would hear the news of you know, uh, you know, so much uh, drought, I mean, water crisis oh. in the cities, oh. and also at the same time we are having the smart cities, we are having structure Bharat, and it was almost calling me. Every news item was uh, pulling me towards India, and I had no idea how I would come here. Okay. But, uh, you know, there's another long story to how I managed to come, because it was a very strong calling, I just couldn't ignore. Oh. And, uh, yeah, oh. so here I am, two years, I've been in India, back in India, given my cushy job at Sydney Water, and uh, enjoying my journey. Wow, that that that's a, <laughs> that is fantastic. That's very brave of you also to be. You know, not many people would do that to just leave, yes. um, especially a, yes. a country like Australia, uh, a yes. job, and then move back here. So. What is it that made you really, I mean, what was your calling? What, mm-hmm. what is it okay. that made you come back? And then in these last two years, what is it that you've been doing? Doing, okay. So what happened is, I'll tell you in short, what I learned from my experience in the last five, six years in Australia is that uh, mainly uh, what I learned is the centralized city, uh, the system that are fed, uh, currently being serviced in the cities all around the world, they are already, they are kind of reaching their expiry date, especially in growing cities. So, and it is a linear system and therefore an unsustainable system. Mm-hmm. And uh, the alternative, or uh, the good news I was learning is, the alternative is small-scale decentralized secular systems uh, created, you know, in, in a distributed way. Okay. Uh, and the other good news with those small-scale <laughs> decentralized systems is that 
uh, you can do it at any scale, at any smaller scale to a bigger scale. Okay. And the smaller scale you do, the better it is because you are actually harnessing local water, uh, local resources, and you have, but the catch is that you must involve the local water, the local water users or the local citizens okay. or the local community. Okay. Sure. And uh, so I just felt that uh, that is not being, uh, so that, I felt the possibility of that has to be uh, done in India because when the city is already suffering, that is when you can actually get people uh, to, you know, gather around the idea that there is a solution because they have already run out of solutions. So that was the calling, that I must go to India and show them there is so much possible when you do it at that decentralized scale and a small scale. Wow. Then, uh, so when I, so since I've come here, what I've been doing is basically, uh, first thing I did was to really try and understand, because I focused uh, my attention because I want to work with the water users. I was clear about that because, you know, you can, up, that's the good news about these small systems is that you do not need to look up to a government as such to solve the problem at a small boundary that you have control of. Uh, so that was the optimistic part that, uh, you know, otherwise I wouldn't have, I don't think I would have come because if, it's, if you're going to rely on a government system, then I, I'm not the right person because I've never been here for last 25 years. But uh, what gave me courage is that I just have to connect with local water users. So I, I focused there and I focused my attention on, on residential. Residential, okay, go ahead. Residential. And then so my, my job, so I studied then to see what are the different uh, configurations of water supply system they have in Bangalore because I made Bangalore as my base, uh, and, and because it's kind of suffering. So what are the, what are the different challenges they have, uh, in this at, at a very individual community level? Uh, what are the different sources they use and what, uh, what are the, uh, the, the ways they go about making decisions? Because, you know, apartments are very, a complex body of community where decisions get made by this managing committee and they have their own problems, uh, you know, with that. So I, I kept uh, talking to them, uh, understanding and actually going and auditing these buildings to learn. It was like a research almost. It's a bootstrap research I was doing because unless I understand it, so my, my aim was that I want to show them that you could retrofit a building uh -huh. with uh, solutions that would reduce your dependency on these unsustainable tanker waters, uh, deep borewells that you are relying on uh, by 50 to 100 percent. So that was my goal. So in order to do that, I need to uh, go and collect the data of the building and understand uh, what the, where are the solutions that can fit and, and provide them an integrated solution to say, look, if you make these one, two, three, four things, uh, and that is all very uh, technically doable, I, financially affordable, and you would become... You would become self-sufficient. Okay, I was just reading an article in the yes. Who the other day. I think it was on the for the Feb. It says that almost one lakh apartments are vacant in the city of Bangalore because of water scarcity, and nearly thirty percent of the population is dependent on bore wells. So, could you just check some sure. what are the problems in Bangalore and Bangalore. why are they being caused? Sure. So now, very good question because one of the things that I have to do as part of what I call is a water literacy, uh, you know, thing is that for people to understand why have we arrived at this situation, and you're right, that, uh, you know, Bangalore City has grown so much that uh, 
So I'll tell you why we are in this crisis. Uh, Bangalore, taking Bangalore as an example. So Bangalore uh, has been utilizing water for its city supply from Kaveri River. And uh, but what happens is uh, it has grown so much uh, that the planning has not caught up with it. And even if planning catches up with it, the source is kind of depleting. The original source that is not sufficient to, uh, you know, supply to the population that we have today. Mm. So uh, that is one thing. Because it's a linear system, that means you are taking extract, use, dump, extract, use, dump, which means the source you are extracting is continuously depleting, and it has been happening over past, you know, more than 50 years. Mm. And then you're dumping, and you don't know where you're dumping, but somewhere you're dumping or the system dumps it, and so your polluted water goes up. So there's plenty of water, but it's all polluted. Right? And that is, that is a natural consequence, as an expected predictable consequence of every city's water supply system. Okay. And the okay. reason, so that is the one thing. And what, so what happened is, once the Kaveri got, uh, you know, insufficient, so they restrict the supply. And they say you can't get, uh, you can only get two days a week, you can get only one day a week, or you may not get at all. So then what do people do? They have to uh, drill, they start drilling, they started drilling the uh, well, okay. and what happened is uh, actually Bangalore is a very very hydrogeologically uh, rich place where <laughs> it had lots of um, open wells, and open wells are wells that uh, actually tap water from the uh, aquifer, uh, shallow aquifer that gets recharged with rain. There's another type of aquifer. Uh, it's almost like drilling oil. It, it gets there's water captured in the deep deep uh, rocks uh, underneath. Mm-hmm. And they have taken a million years to travel there. So they don't get recharged with rainwater. But they have some water trapped in them. So people uh, started to tap into those, that's called the deep borewells. Okay. So deep borewells, once they're finished, they will never be replenished. So what happens is, as the people, more and more buildings come, the borewells are getting drilled and they are getting emptied and no more borewells. And eventually there have come a stage where many apartments they have no water, they then start buying water from the tankers, and the tankers source it from some illegal wells they discover here and there. So it's all very jugal and random. Okay. And uh, now the situation is, Malik, in Bangalore, that the, the tanker waters are being auctioned. That means you, you set a price, you bid a price, how much you'll pay. It, it started with, uh, three years ago, it was 300 rupees a tanker. Then it became 500 rupees. How many liters was in for 300 rupees? 5,000, about 5,000. 5,000 liters a tanker. Okay. Okay. So 300, then 500. And then last year it was like 1,000 is very common. Uh-huh. And then there are areas where they started charging them in the summertime. It goes up to 2,500 uh-huh. per tanker. And then I've heard stories where they are filling the tankers and they get a call from another complex saying that we will pay you 3,000 rupees. And they just shut down, they shut down the uh, supply and they immediately rush to the complex. So basically it's a bidding process going on right now. Who, bidding, who is bidding? Is this official bidding or is this unofficial? Illegal? No, right now, right now it's unofficial or over phone call, they'll get a prize. You know, whoever gives the better prizes, no. It's all, it's a very, very informal and Jugaad type uh, system that is, uh, that is very, I must say it is, it's a very informal uh, and ten, uh, what do you call a very, very uh, tenuous situation, but all supported by well-meaning, well, uh, you know, educated people because they have invested crores of rupees in apartments they bought without finding out and without knowing 
what the water situation is. And and I bet there is a, a element of corruption and mafia and the government also in this. They probably know that this is happening, but they're absolutely right. Yes, because I the reason I should say that uh, is because any uh, you know uh, someone who approves a building. Mm. Anybody who approves a building that has got so many apartments that is going to be sold at such a costly price, mm. it would be their responsibility to make sure they ask the builder, you give us a water supply plan. How are you going to supply water to these residents? Okay. Right? And that's a simple thing, common sense question you would ask. Sure. But I don't think that has been asked and therefore <coughs> lots of apartments have been built and with nothing, absolutely no water supply. And I don't know how people also actually were fooled into buying these papers. Uh, and because they were fooled into, they've already invested financially into it. They continue to live there mm. and they do the, uh, they get their tanks filled with the uh, tanker water supply right now. The cost to these apartment owners or these RWAs must be massive to fill. I mean, let's say there are 500 apartments. Are you yes. How, how much? I mean, just give us a ballpark figure of somebody like a 500 apartments. How much water would they be consuming every day? Well, for example, you know, they are many of them are ordering. Uh, suppose there's a 200 uh, apartment building, like 10 trucks, 15 trucks uh, per day. Every day the trucks come and fill up their fill up their uh, you know the pumps, and uh, and then they become open to liters per day. Yes. Had an app. Multiply by 15. So 15 tankers. Sorry? So you can see. For example, if it's a, it's a building of about, uh, you know, 15 uh, houses, they would need a, a tanker or two, right? Okay. So you can imagine if it's like 150, it's 10, 10, uh, 10 tankers. Wow. There are 20, wow. 30 tankers. So it's, it's, it goes like that. So, and then what happens is there's no way for them to also, now they've started to introduce the practice of, you know, putting a meter, uh, when they're putting the sump in. But they, they were very open to being manipulated by the tanker water suppliers as well, because if they didn't know how much they need, they would just guess a number and they would just get it, uh, supplied. Wow. So yeah, I think, uh, it's a, if you want to see what is going to be the situation of all cities in few years, you can come to Bangalore and experience it. Because uh, people think we are fine, you know, Jaipur says, oh, we are good, we have water. But if you are on a linear system, mm. if you are on a linear system, you are on a timeline. You are on a, sitting on a time bomb, it's just a matter of time. In a few years, you'll become Bangalore because cities are growing. That is the reality. But that's, the water supply, that's a problem here yes. in Gurgaon also. That's a problem in Dhofa yes. where um, okay. bunkers are going and filling the uh, filling these tanks, and then water is being pumped up to. So this is a this is to tell. So tell me something now. Uh -huh. You figured out this system. Who's responsible? Yes. Isn't it the government's responsibility to supply water to these buildings? Yes, I, I, of course, we are, you know, they do have a, you know, brief and their responsibility. Uh, that is surely, but what has happened is, it is in a way you can, I can also understand because you can kind of, uh, I'll tell you the reason why it is, it is impossible for a government or a monopoly agency that has been like all utilities. It's a common thing around the world mm -hmm. that every city is managed by a monopoly and it was all for good reason. Okay, they gave the mandate to one for one company to manage everything and supply. So, which means no competition. Secondly, they are all full of engineers only, which is monodiscipline. Mm. So, they cannot, they have a group think, okay, for 100 years. Mm. 
They've just been doing the same thing. And they're all males only, mostly males. So again, there's uh, no diversity, no, uh, you know, opportunity to have other views. So all of this has acted as a devil rally. So you're managing a linear system, an unsustainable system, and you're using their monopoly, all the powers rest in you, which, which means you have no competition. There's no reason for you to innovate. And on top of that, you have a monodiscipline, and you think, you know, you, so now you are in a situation, you run out of water, you are supposed to innovate, you are supposed to find, think out of the box. But what is it, where is the capacity of the government or whichever department is running the water supply? Do you expect them to, it's like moving a Titanic. Because I worked for Sydney Water from inside. Okay. After I worked for the city of Sydney, they hired me to work from inside to, to help the build capacity of their asset managers to start looking at things in a new way, right? Uh, and I, I, I got a first-hand uh, experience of how difficult it is to get someone who has worked in uh, thinking in one same way to look at things differently. It is very hard, so you cannot blame them either. But what I say is that let us understand, let us acknowledge the reality. It's not about blame game. It's saying that let's acknowledge the reality, Let's also acknowledge the fact that the decentralized system gives water users the responsibility to own and take control of their water future. Mm -hmm. So if it's your mm -hmm. future, why shouldn't you uh, take charge? Why shouldn't you take responsibility? Yes, it is technically it may be challenging initially, and that's why I feel I have set myself up to say that if you are interested in securing your water future, and in that process, you will also be doing a service to the city. Because you're going to take your burden off the uh, linear, unsustainable system that the city is relying on. So what so is that, right now yes. is that you are doing at a household level or a community level? In, just give us um, yeah. you know, a brief about what you're doing in terms of how you are helping them reduce their water and what are the tactics mm -hmm. you're using to do so. Sure. Sure. So what happens is, as I said, uh, first of all, I tell them, look, uh, if you, it is technically and financially doable to uh, to uh, find out what solutions will apply to you and what are the solutions I'm talking about. For example, uh, so what happens the mindset of the, of the government as well as of the water user is that whenever you have a water shortage, right, whenever you have a water shortage, what do you first think of, where can I get water from? Sure. The shortage, the shortage is a function of your demand as well as your supply. Sure. So just because there's a shortage, you only look to increase your supply. You do not even look at your demand. Mm -hmm. Never, nobody is looking at the demand at all. So that means nobody is questioning. It's like if you, if you have money from a rich dad and they just keep supplying and supplying mm -hmm. and you don't have to take account of your expenses, of course you're going to be just, you know, uh, wasting it or you could use it for anything, right? Yes. So it's just the same situation with the water users right now. Because they've been supplied water, uh, you know, without worrying about where it comes from, how much it costs. Yes. So they can be using it. And now uh, what we're saying is that uh, you need to learn to understand that how do you count water? Because it's important to measure the water that you're using and you're needing mm. so that you can monitor where you're spending it and there's a lot you can do in optimizing the way you're consuming it. Okay. And that is one one of the solutions. Okay. So normally the solution, this solution never gets with that, whereas it has opportunity to from 50 to 60% of your water consumption reduces by simply optimizing your water use through a proper good 
shower, good bath, good uh, efficient showers, uh, you know, the right way of doing it. It also involves a soft change in your behavior as well. But this is what we introduce and we make people more aware with numbers, with experiential learning. Okay. And that is makes a big part of the solution. And then there is hardware solution. So after you've taken care of your efficiency, then we ask you to look at your groundwater sustainability, which gives you a false security. Right now, people have a false sense of security with their bowels. And we help them understand the difference between types of wells. So, Doctor, what you hear one minute? I just wanted to go back to your point yes. of where you are doing on water audits at a household level, uh, telling and yes. shower. So, I have two specific questions. <clears throat> yes. Where do you find in a household that they are consuming the maximum amount of water? One. Okay. Mm -hmm. Second is. There is obviously when people are changing shower, changing their showers or or whatever, doing some modification in terms of the, which would help them reduce the, their water consumption. Um, yep. There has to be a financial implication on them for doing so. Yes. How are you convincing them to actually take that financial bite to do this? Okay. Good question. So first question was about uh, you know uh, where are the most uh, inefficiencies you find, wastage, you know, a lot of wastage that happens. Yeah. So most wastage we find is uh, in kitchen, uh, dishwashing, uh, hand washing. Uh, there's also, if you have, uh, you know, a lot of outdoor use, uh, if you do not monitor it well, it can go haywire, it can go a lot. Uh, you know, for example, in many cases, car washes can consume a lot of water depending on how they use it. Okay. Uh, and also okay. RO rigid water is a famous one, You, everyone knows, you know, they have an RO system at, at home and that rejects a lot of water yeah. and that's a lot of, 80% yeah. of the water gets uh, to waste. Okay. So uh, okay. these are these are the uh, key areas, hotspot areas. How are you measuring this? Like, I, I mean, just to get an idea so that, you know, listeners yeah. know that this sure. is how you actually measure this. Correct. So what happens is water audit is a very uh, well-known process. It involves, it's not about <laughs> when you want to measure water as a, at a first instance, uh, you don't necessarily need a meter. Of course, meters, if you have, that's fine, but it's not possible always to have meters put in place to measure, mm -hmm. right? Uh, because you want to understand initially. Yeah. So the process, what it involves is we do three levels of audits. Okay. So or three levels of data collection. One is at the infrastructure level. So we try and understand what uh, what are the pipes, pumps, tanks, uh, overhead tanks, pumps, uh, where is the water coming from, where is it going, how much it's getting pumped, and uh, what are the systems they already have, rainwater harvesting system or NFTP. So we look at all of that and get to know uh, its condition, its operation, how is it configured, how is it operating right now, okay. and that is one level of uh, data collection. Okay. The second level of data collection is the outdoor water uses, because there's so many scattered different uses, we, we try and uh, look at, break it down and get the information of, of each of those uses so that we can actually, uh, you know, estimate the amount they use on a daily basis uh, and therefore, you know, what would it be on an annual basis. Okay. So in the same way, the third level of audit is uh, we do the indoor, the household level. So for example, if there's an apartment of about 100 flats, yeah. okay, it doesn't mean we go into every single 100 flats. We just have to take a sample of the flats, depending on how diverse it is, if it is very uniformly built, then we don't need a lot of samples. We will need uh, samples from different floors, different towers, 
uh, so that would make a representative sample and we would go into these households and we will be measuring the top floor rates, the showerhead rates, we will ask them questions on how much, how often, uh, how, how often they do the dishwashing, mm. how long they do the dishwashing. So these are very detailed usage practices, uh, frequency of use, all that technical data collection once we do. Okay. Then okay. we, then we crunch these numbers and we are, and also about the roof area, how much, because we also want to take account of the rainwater that falls on the premise. Okay. So basically the audit process is not just looking at water that is being supplied. It is also about how much water sewage is generated or used water is generated, how much rain water falls and how much of it is getting captured in any tank or if they have a system or how much of it is getting discharged from the site. So we take account of all the waters that are within the site and then we are able to uh, take the numbers and show to the residents, here is your water uh, source. This is the percentage of water you use from Bogan. This is the percentage you use from Kaveri. And this is the percentage you get from tankers. Right? And this is a breakdown at an indoor level. This is a breakdown of water use at an outdoor level. Now it is very clear. Suddenly you find, oh, actually we have a lot of use happening in this particular uh, end use. So we, we look at, you know, how can we make it more efficient? And how, they, how can we reduce it? So that is one uh, basic. And then you look at, you be sure that all the rain that falls on your site, uh, how much of it actually gets out of the, you are wasting it, letting it go off your site. How much of it naturally uh, going into the ground without you doing anything about it because there are some soft surfaces in your premise through which it naturally filters down. Sure. Then there is uh, uh, some, if you have a rainwater harvesting system, how much of it is actually, is it configured right? If it is considered right, how much is it actually capturing and you are using how much of it, okay. right? So that is, uh, and then sewage, if you have an STP uh, or if you don't have an STP, how much of used water is actually getting thrown out of your site? And, uh, and therefore, so then what we do is after doing this data analysis, we give them key traffic light indicators. Okay. So these key traffic light indicators, you as a water user, you get to know where is your, how well are you doing? Because it's like a diagnostic. So when you go to a doctor, before you buy the medicine, you need to know uh, which part of your uh, physiology is uh, not functioning. So exactly like that, we give them three indicators. One is water efficiency. We give them, are you red, yellow, or green on that? And how, how sustainable is your groundwater? Is it red, yellow, or green? How, uh, how much potential you are wasting or you are using of your own water on the site, which we call a self-sufficiency indicator. Okay. So, three indicators together allow you to know where is the room for improvement. If your efficiency is red, then we tell you that if you put this solution, you will get from red to yellow. If you put one more solution, you will get from yellow to green. You have to, you have to do this yes. visually with every house or uh, like how do you do it or is it? Is it no, no, it's for the apartment. No, no, it's for the apartment community, not for we use the data from individual houses, okay. a sample of them, okay. and then we present the picture for the, so the apartment community. Okay, okay. And then, the, uh, and then whoever wants to uh, subscribe to the model can do so, or is it that the whole Yeah, so I'll, so I'll come to that. So what happens once you've presented the solution, generally what happens is, uh, so when you are asking, you know, how do people uh, pay for it, or why would they pay for it? Now, the situation in Bangalore is, what is your option? 
if you are depending on an expensive tanker water, mm. you know, what is your option? You have no other option. Mm. You know, if you better do this or then that's up to you, if whatever you want to do. So basically as a business uh, service, mm. uh, you know, because they have to make it financially sustainable business, okay. I'm not even looking, I'm not wasting my time laboring on why they should do it. Okay. I'm only focusing on those proactive people who have understood that there is no other option. This is the best option I have. Then it is not about the future. I'm not going to wait for the government to do something for me. Sure. And I'm sure. capable of paying for this. It is also, as I said, all these solutions are financially affordable. Okay. Their payback is anywhere between three months to three years. Oh, wow. Okay. okay. And if you put them, especially if you put them all together, because some of them payback will be six months, another maybe seven years. But if you put them all together as a package, your payback of the entire investment is about five years maximum. Okay. okay, so now, now I, my question is, so what I normally do is I present them the payback series. I also present them one thing, one, one assessment called a risk assessment. Who say that, okay, you, this, you please also understand the risk of not investing in these solutions. Okay. Uh, by going, making them go through what the situation was five years ago, you rate the situation, what was the rating you would give to your water at five years ago, what is the situation now compared to five years ago, okay. and what do you think is going to happen five years from now? Okay. Now, given that you understand that, mm. if you decide not to invest, you now rate your scenario of your water situation as giving you some pain. Mm. Okay, so we put mm. the, we ask them to rate the likelihood that your borewell that you're currently relying on is going to dry out. Okay. Okay, a scenario. So now you rate the likelihood, if you think it is, you know, given what I've told you about the borewell, you now rate, so if you rate it is to be quite likely, then you rate what will be the consequence if it, if it does dry out. You rate it as moderate, uh, you know, very critical, bad or whatever. So once you rate that together, the likelihood of the scenario and the consequence of it, you can see you are a very high alert, you are, a, you are on a red alert. Okay. So once you understood you are on a red alert, what's your choice? Do you want to continue like this or you want to have a measure put in place? which will secure your future. Not, it's not, and water is not a commodity you can replace. So you, you have no option. Yes, and why did you come to Bangalore? You came for a job, for a future, or for education, right? Yeah. So what happens yeah. to that when, when that situation happens? So it is no longer a payback period question. It is more about, is my future in Bangalore secure? That is the question. It is not about water being secure. Is your future secure? So once the question becomes if your future secure, money uh, decision, money uh, criteria becomes low, but for that you have to have to make them think in that way. Mm. Because it is not the normal. So I call myself in the business of behavior change. Okay. I'm not in the business of water. It's a business of behavior change. Okay. For example, the apartment associations when I researched, mm. I found that they were not able to make any decisions because they're so conflict ridden. Because they can't make up their auditor, they are arguing about why should I put a rainwater harvesting in uh, just because you tell me to do so, yeah. right? Yeah. And fair enough, because where is the evidence? There's, it's all guesswork going on, right? Sure. So because of the guesswork, there's no transparency, there's no clarity on the decision. So what I offer in terms of making their decision-making behavior change is to introduce a transparency evidence uh, traffic light indicator, a scorecard, so that they can all have a shared understanding. Okay. All the community has a shared understanding. There's a clear-cut objective di 
diagnostic offer to you, which means it's not about your word against mine. It is an objective assessment someone has done. Now you decide what this solution you want to prioritize. That's a, that discussion they can have as a community in a more plain way now. So that's a behavior change. Okay. Earlier there's no there's no decision gets made. And even if it does, it it ends up giving them you know wrong results. Because they just get to give them so some. Uh, interrupt you here one minute. I just wanted to uh, yes. deep dive a little bit into behavior change because you know that is something that's yes. plaguing our country in uh, every sense, from waste to whether it be uh, you know urinating out in the open or what, yes. you know corruption or whatever might it, uh, it, it might be. So yes. in terms of behavior change, how successful have you been? Um, in converting these people to actually think in a manner that you want them to think, um, which is, of course, ensuring that keeping finances aside, they need to look at not only the security of their future, but also the security of their mm -hmm. children and grandchildren. Uh, how successful yes. have you been in this? Okay. So, uh, yes, behavior change now, when you talk about behavior change for people who are defecating, urinating outside versus behavior change for the people I'm targeting, uh, we have, it, it will be a very different approach. Yeah. So that is one thing to acknowledge first. Sure. So uh, given that this is a more educated community, so what I normally do is that uh, I'll talk about my success uh, or not having what success later, but I want to talk to you about the approach. Sure. So for example, sure. these buildings, uh, as I said, they are, you know, occupied by very, you know, well-educated, they're all corporate, uh, you know, jobs they have, etc. Uh, and uh, they're time for. Okay, so that is one thing, but they do, because of their background, because they're IT and, you know, science and technologies, so they do, uh, that's why I purposely use the scorecard terminology, or, or uh, like, uh, you know, because they're used to uh, that type of, um, you know, term, risk assessment. All these are not uh, something that's new to them. They already do that at, at their workplace, right? So if I can bring the same way of thinking into this uh, decision making, then I'm able to get them uh, up to speed or, you know, think with me, think with me on this. And I also believe that, uh, as I said, we have to acknowledge that the current uh, centralized system that has been prevalent for so many years in all the cities, uh, that has made water users illiterate not for their fault. It is not our water users' fault that they became illiterate. The system has it's an unintended consequence of the system that the water users are illiterate, mm. right? And they are at a, uh, you know, they are less, they don't understand what do I do? Because for so long I have depended on someone, so someone surely will solve my problem. So once I acknowledge and empathize that I don't want, because often the conversation can become, you know, you don't even understand this. No, I often have very empathy and sympathy for them because, for example, I can tell you myself, I didn't fully understand how the solid waste management system works. Mm. Because mm. unless you have been into it, you have worked into it, only those who are working into it know how a complex solid waste management system works. And you also, you know from your experience, how much you labor on explaining to people how it works. Right? Okay. Yeah. So unless someone is yeah. into it, it is very, very hard to know. So my, uh, so the way I uh, try to get the behavior change is also giving them an idea of the current system what the system faulted at, and again, it is not a conspiracy theory or anything, it is to say, look, if the system served us well up to a point the city was of a certain population, but okay. it cannot go on because cities are constantly growing. Sure. 
and and uh, therefore uh, let us acknowledge that there is this is not the way and also i want them to know that the uh, people who are managing the systems are having a big uh, task on their hands so we cannot expect them to uh, you know uh, disrupt right but what is possible is for you as water users to take do what is within your control and power and is not within your power the fact that you can make yourself self sufficient is lot more powerful than waiting and knocking on the door of the government or blaming the government i don't like to blame the government simply because i understand why they are behaving the way they are behaving and why is that doing, why is that the, the, because okay because in in india the cost recovery is very bad of the you know the, the way how much it costs to drink kaveri water to bangalore it is like 80% of their cost is just paying electricity bills and they don't get the water bills paid in time the water uh, price is so low that it doesn't hardly covers everything secondly it is a linear system it cannot it cannot keep on uh, you know uh, supplying water to as many population as it comes mm-hmm. that's the fact mm-hmm. all the politicians will never like to admit it because they themselves don't understand how the system works or doesn't work have you right? have you tried approaching the government at all in terms of pitching this to them and telling them this is what yes. you do and scale it up and and what is the response yes. been to it absolutely so what happens is there is a big picture here that once you have shown what is possible by the water users themselves investing in these solutions yeah. my uh, pitch to the municipalities is that look guys you are struggling managing your big system right and here they are able to become water self sufficient by investing in these solutions can you help them out in some way to for example right now they pay for the audit right they pay for, to me for this audit they do because only after doing the audit they get the optimized solutions given to them sure. so can you pay for the audit can you give them a rebate on because i would like to prove to them just like i proved to sidney water that when you invest money into a program like that since they invested money into a financial rebate on the investment they do and on the audit sector how much saving and how much pressure mm-hmm. will be off the system and that will make a business case to yes go and support them instead of just having a regulation to say you should have your own scp you should have a rainwater harvesting it has yielded nothing it has yielded wrongly designed rainwater harvesting it has yielded wrongly designed scp or a switch stop they they operated it for showing on paper and they turned it off and so it is not you know just a stick approach will not work you have to have carrot and stick because simply because it also benefits you after all you have given that regulation so that they don't depend on your system so that the pressure from the system is off so why shouldn't you provide them support because it's not an easy thing for a residential community to say go and they you know, create your own water okay it's not easy and the commercial and industrial properties can afford a consultant or a consultant or a multinational or someone but what where do the residential go and that's why i have made it a point to focus on residential because nobody is wanting to it's a headache it's a very very uh, complex community but but i i have full faith that because it's a very educated and you know urban users are not poor so at least you know? thing at lastly i just because <clears throat> i want to wrap it up i also wanted to ask yes. you quickly is in terms yes. of the the waste water that is coming out um mm-hmm. you are, what are your plans to help these communities maybe use um, um systems 
yeah. treat it and then reuse this water. Are you planning something on that side? No, of course, not planning. It's already happening in Bangalore, oh. Malik. Already happening. Many, many of properties. We are. They are doing. There is no. No more. We call it. Uh, I don't like to call it waste water at all. It's called used water. So the used water is being treated either in the grave form, which means without the toilet water, or with the uh, when it combines with the sewage, it's called the sewage. Uh, when everything is combined for sewage, uh, they they are treating sewage and supplying it to the toilet flushing already. That is already happening. Okay. Then there are leftover water. So leftover water also can be upgraded to a very fine quality. And all these and the best news is, Manik, all these technologies are inside official technology in Bangalore, in India, from different cities. You can get these technology. You don't have to go anywhere outside India. And that's why I'm saying that this is the best time that they can become self-sufficient because all technologies are off the shelf. They're proven technologies. They're technically feasible. They're financially doable. What's the only part is socially doable. That is what I am basically uh, focusing on. How to bring all the ducks together in a, a socialize this in a way that people get it and that just get on with doing it. That's all they need to do. Awesome. Thank you, Dr. Bhakti. It was very informative. And um, Thank you. Just tell our users as to yes. where they could find you, um, how they could find you and yes. that's with you. So, sure. You can go to the website called urbanwaterdoctor.com. Okay. Urbanwaterdoctor.com. U-R-B-A-N, urbanwaterdoctor.com. Okay. And my email address is urbanwaterdoctor at gmail.com. Okay, and and on social media, where all are you present? So social, I'm I'm on LinkedIn and Facebook. Uh, I am on Twitter, but not very active. Uh, my Twitter handle is H2O Futures, uh, but I'm not so active. But LinkedIn is the best place. Awesome, awesome. Thank you so much for your time, Doctor. Thank you. Thank you. Bye bye. Thank you. Bye bye.